Bond. James Bond. Japanese proverbs say, bird never make nest in bear tree. Just a slight stiffness coming on. Your cellos are Stradivarius. I'm just up here at Oxford, brushing up on a little Danish. You know what I can do with my little finger. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Roger Moore's Cubbyhole episode. This is a podcast where we review, analyze, and just talk generally about one of our favorite film characters, James Bond 007. As usual, I'm joined by the man who never eats fish with red wine. It's Phil. How are you, Phil? No, I'm very good. Thank you, Martin. Um, Had another busy week, but looking forward to getting into more Bond action in this week's podcast. And again, I'll be looking at the sort of the cars and gadgets that are featured in our film for this week. Good stuff. And we also have old man of the show by a few months. It's Adam. How are you, Adam? I'm very well. I was better before you called me an old man. You won't be needing this old man. I'm very good, thank you. I've, I have realised this week the fundamental flaw of this podcast in that while we're all very much still finding our feet with it, we have to do basically a lot of the best of the Bond films. So it's a big challenge early on, but one I think we're up to. Well, yeah, today's episode, we're going to be looking at uh, the second James Bond film from Russia with Love, arguably one of the best Bond films, certainly on my rewatching this week. I have reviewed some of my own thinking about which is the best Bond film, So, uh, but we'll go into that uh, later. Ooh, that sounds a little bit tantalizing. That's, that's major. Yeah, well, uh, let's, uh, let's kick off then. Shall we uh, start with, uh, as usual, our film in brief presented by... Mr. Alan Partridge, or firstly, Adam. Uh, Yeah, no, Alan's not quite here yet. He'll be just around the corner. So, yep, from Russia with Love. This is the second James Bond film based on the fifth book. John Fitzgerald Kennedy, then president of the United States, listed it as one of his 10 favorite novels, which is one of the reasons why this became the second Bond film. Terence Young returns to direct again, and Sean Connery, of course, returns in the role of 007. Released in October 1963, uh, this cost double the amount of money to make that Dr. No did. This was a budget of $2 million and grossed double what Dr. No made. In its original release, $12 million at the worldwide box office. After re-release, that went up to $78 million. So this was a real mega hit of its day. Interestingly, three ex-James Bonds, Connery himself, Timothy Dalton and Daniel Craig, alongside the current producers Michael G. Wilson and Barbara Broccoli, have all named this as their favourite James Bond film. And Albert R. Cubby Broccoli, our great namesake, lists it as one of his top three, alongside, incidentally, Goldfinger and The Spy Who Loved Me. And so, without any further ado, for the film in brief, he's back again. Let's hand over to Alan Partridge to run us through From Russia With Love. So, we're looking down the barrel of a gun at a man who still isn't Sean Connery. Bang! Blood dribbles down. James Bond's having a nighttime stroll through a lovely garden and oh my god, he's dead! No wait, it's a random bloke with a moustache and a very expensive and accurate face mask. A spectre assassin killed him in one minute fifty-two seconds. That's excellent. Cue the music. There's so much belly dancing you can barely see the credits. Now a man with a waxy face wins at chess and tells Blofeld a fiendish master plan. They're going to have the British steal the decoding machine from the Russians and then sell it right back to them. But it's a revenge plot because 
demand the British will almost certainly use his their agent, James Bond. And Blofeld says, it is definitely a particularly unpleasant and humiliating one. So Rosa Klebb, the grand high lesbian of Spectre, recruits Russia's fittest Tatiana Romanova, a fine-looking girl who's had three lovers for a unusual and delightful duty. Cut to Bond again, and yes, he's with a lady. It's Sylvia Trench again, and he brushes her off with a quickie again to go and learn about his mission. M tells him it's obviously a trap, but we need a lecture. And Q gives him his first gadget, an attaché case. If you don't open it properly, a tear gas cartridge will explode in your face. Then Bond goes to Istanbul to meet Karim Bey, the world's most nepotistic spy. His chauffeur who drove you is my son. All of my key employees are my sons. And because all they've got to do is wait around for the girl to contact them, Bond and Karim go gallivanting off around Istanbul, ending up at a gypsy camp where they watch the sexiest girl fight in history before having a shootout with the Russians to our theme tune. <laughs> now, back in his bridal suite, Bond finds Tatiana in his bed completely belly bollocks. I think my mouth is too big. No, it's just the right size. For me, that is. But what they don't know is Rosa Klebs behind the mirror filming them for a secret porno. Anyway, Bond uses her to steal the lecture machine and Karim gets them both on the Orient Express where they just flaunt about in some laundry for a bit. But the Spectre assassin's aboard and he kills Karim and poses as Bond's new MI6 contact. Nash, Captain Nash. But Bond's all over it because he makes faux pas after faux pas. And after he drugs the girl, Bond's like, I knew you were a bad one. Red wine with fish should have told me something. And yet again, the villain tells Bond literally the entire plan. I get a great kick out of watching the great James Bond realize what a bloody fool he's been before Bond kills him in the greatest fist fight of all time, entirely thanks to Q's suitcase. And then he brushes it off saying, you won't be needing this, old man. Then Bond and Tatiana jump off the train, shoot down a chopper, steal a boat, blow up loads of other boats, and escape to Venice. And Blofeld's so mad he has Mr. Waxyface killed and sends the Grand High Lesbian to kill Bond herself. Except Tatiana's been converted by Bond's magic penis and shoots Cleb in her terrible French maid's outfit. Horrible woman. Yes, she's had her kicks. Then they have a lovely gondola ride where Bond has a quick look at the porno tape before settling down for the real thing, the end. Lovely, thanks, Alan. Thanks, Adam, as well. So, uh, yeah, a lot, lots of things happening in this film. Certainly more complicated than uh, Doctor No. Of course, we said our previous episode, we said Doctor No was a simple film done right. Uh, this one is a more complicated film, uh, but also, I feel, done right. Uh, what were your impressions, Phil, of From Russia With Love? Well, first impression, I mean, I've always enjoyed it. it is, again, it is one of the very best. But when I was watching back at it, I was actually working out. I think this is, From Russia With Love is probably the film that I've watched the least of the entire Bomb franchise, surprisingly. Which, when you consider how just how good it is in terms of the plot and delivery and, and the acting as well, it is quite surprising. But um, I really do enjoy it. I think it is one of the very best of the bunch, certainly one of Connery's very best. And I think when you look at the plot, it is further into the into the franchise. Obviously, things do get a bit sillier. This is where we're in the more sort of real world espionage where you can see it as a more believable plot. So it is, there is a lot more realism to what they are doing. And, you know, you can believe that in the early 60s, this probably would have happened in some in some cases. And when you look at 
things like the knife shoe that Rosa Klebb uses, the fact they base that on a real KGB weapon that was developed, I think is one of the groundbreaking films of the entire franchise. It was, you know, it was groundbreaking at the time. But yeah, I think I agree with you, Phil. I think the, the certainly the plot captivated me from, from Russia with Love. When I was a kid watching it, of course, I was mesmerized by the, uh, the villains, particularly uh, in this film that we'll talk about, I'm sure, later. Uh, but uh, certainly watching it as an adult, the, the plot is more exciting than, than I remembered the, with Spectre playing off the, the Russians with the British. What did, uh, what did you think, Adam? Which, which category of Spectre does this one fall into? Oh, there's everything in terms of Spectre. This is almost a team-up with the extortion and the revenge departments. Kronstein specifically says that. They're going to extort money out of the Russians and they're going to take revenge on Bond for killing Dr. No. So Mr. Disabled Metal Hands will not go unavenged and will not go forgotten. To reiterate what you've said, I think this is absolutely extraordinarily good filmmaking. And I think had the original intent of Saltzman and Broccoli been fulfilled and they'd only made a series of five thrillers through the 60s, I would imagine this is the one that would probably have endured in film history. And I think it's still, in a sense, slightly slighted by film history in the sense that it's revered as one of the great James Bond films by Bond fans, but a lot of people outside the series perhaps see it still in the shadow of Goldfinger. But in its own right, it's an absolutely exemplary Cold War thriller. It oozes cool. It was cool then. It stayed cool for over 50 years, and it's still cool today. And it's really sexy. The level of intrigue and salaciousness and seediness going on in that storyline the idea that they're filming a secret agent and a Russian cipher clerk having sex and they're going to use that to blackmail the British government. Just that and so many other elements of this film are so dark and kind of broody. And like you say, they tie into real world espionage and how murky that world is. And to build on what we said last week about Doctor No being a very efficiently directed film, it's very punchy. All the elements are there, but in prototype form. Uh, laying the foundations, I guess, of the series. In this one, they're really starting to fly and they're making the film with a real degree of confidence and elan, which perhaps was missing from Doctor No. Uh, and I think that makes this a really brilliant, brilliant film, even to this day. It's still one of my favourites. I think this is an absolutely tremendous work. Yeah, I'd certainly go along with that. Goldfinger used to be my favourite. We'll, we'll take a look at uh, that one in our next episode, of course. But... Uh... I think I may have changed. I think my favourite Bond film is now From Russia With Love. Well, there is a quote from Michael G. Wilson, one of the two current producers of the Bond franchise, who says, every time we set out to make a new Bond film, we start out trying to make From Russia With Love and it inevitably turns into Thunderball. And I do get what he's saying. And like you've said before, the storyline of this one is so good and it's so complex. It's not a series of set pieces strung together that Bond's moving from. It's not a crazy megalomaniacal plan. It's that thing again of it's the action film which is taking place in a reality, although not necessarily rooted in realism. This one is rooted in realism. You could imagine this as a plot, particularly in the novel where it's not this international organization like Spectre. It is the Russian Secret Service who are the chief villains, and I'll talk a little bit about that later. But you can absolutely imagine this having taken place and the British Secret Service having been targeted for this kind of smear campaign. Yeah, I thought it was interesting, the, the salacious nature of that, uh, particularly the, the, the porn movie, as Alan mentioned, being filmed by Rosa behind the mirror. It's interesting that nowadays, of course, that would be not such a big thing. Or certainly, even in the Bond series, we, we see him 
attempting re-entry, sir. Um, so he's not he's not uh, he's not bothered about that, is he? Re-entry in zero gravity, no less. But I guess at the time it was very salacious, wasn't it? it? Was I guess it was shocking to have that on in a movie. I think it would have been, even in the context that uh, this is still very much the epicenter of um, swinging London and of the 1960s and of, you know, attitudes towards love and sex being much more liberal than they ever were before. The interesting thing to bring up, actually, on the, the seedier side of it is that 1963 is also the year that the Profumo scandal blows up in British politics. This was uh, John Profumo, then a cabinet minister, was outed as having had a relationship with a call girl, Christine Keeler. And this was a huge sensational story in the British press at the time. This had never happened to someone in public life who had been seen as someone who was very much a part of the upper class elite establishment. Now sex scandals with MPs are kind of ten a penny, but that was uncharted territory at the time. And again, you see that it is the Bond films really taking advantage of what's going on in the world. I think it's also interesting as well, Adam, the fact that when the film came out, I think the censors did want to try and edit that sex scene you know, and they were threatening to, to actually have it cut from the film. So it was quite interesting that they were, they were brave enough to kind of keep it in, although they, couldn't, they probably couldn't show it in as much gratuity as they might have wanted to. So, yeah, we've said that the, uh, the plot line is exceptional and another key area i feel are the villains i think they really elevate this if the if the villains were not so good i think the maybe they wouldn't have carried the plot as they do interested to get your take Sedum and phil who do you think is the best villain it's quite difficult to choose between cleb or red well this is a unique bond film in a way in the sense that we don't really have one central figurehead villain it's more a triumvirate it's batman in the 60s film and he's up against the penguin and the joker and the riddler He's up against pretty much every type of Bond villain that he would go up against throughout the rest of the series. You've got Blofeld as number one of Spectre. In this instance, of course, kept in shadow. You only see his hands and his cat and we hear his voice. Then, of course, there is um, Rosa Klebb, who I guess is sort of our main villain. She's the one who is, I guess, kind of running the operation. And so, you know, she would be the traditional Bond villain. And in a sense, Grant is more the henchman, but he is the uber henchman. He is the scariest henchman in terms of being physically imposing, probably until Jaws comes along in The Spy Who Loved Me, and pretty much for the rest of the series, remains the one guy who you feel in a fair fight could actually finish Bond off. You know, when the fight on the train begins, after everything you've seen of him, you don't think Bond has much of a chance. And again, it's something where we can talk about the physicality of performance. We talked a little bit about this with Joseph Wiseman and how rigid and how stiff and how slow and measured and powerful he was. And in a very different way, Lottie Lenya and uh, Robert Shaw, as Cleb and Red Grant, are doing the same thing. They don't have much dialogue. Obviously, Grant very deliberately does not speak at all to really give him that sense of granite and of absolute physical power and authority and maximum fear. He doesn't speak until the very last scene that he's in when he confronts Bond on the train carriage, pretty much, at least in his own voice. Uh, and physically, it's an incredible performance. And the fact that it's speechless means that he just feels almost like the Terminator 20 years before the Terminator was invented. He seems not human in some way. And Robert Shaw's a very interesting actor. He was also a very accomplished writer. He wrote plays, he wrote novels. And when Steven Spielberg later cast him in Jaws as Captain Quint, 
uh, it was very much um, based on this performance as Grant. Spielberg was a huge Bond fan and lobbied to direct one of the films in the late 70s, early 80s. Uh, but Robert Shaw was also a madly competitive person. Phil, you once got me a book called Don't Let the Bastards Grind You Down, which was about that wave of British new wave actors who exploded into cinema in the late 50s and early 60s, the Richard Burtons, the Peter O'Toole's. And of all of them, Robert Shaw was the one who felt that he had a point to prove. He was the one who would compete madly with anyone at anything. There are stories of him behind the scenes at the Royal Shakespeare Company getting really psychotic, trying to beat everyone at ping pong. So this is the kind of guy he is, and you almost sense that in the role, the fact that this guy thinks he's the best, there's a real arrogance to him, and he doesn't fear Bond at all, and there's something really frightening about that that comes through in the performance. Yeah, I guess if you replace the ping pong with pool, then he sounds a bit like you, Adam. To be honest, I'm a very competitive person anyway, so you could replace the ping pong with absolutely anything, and he would sound a bit like me. I like him. I like the sound of him. You've got to play to win, haven't you? Yeah, apparently he was, uh, I read somewhere that he was a raging alcoholic. So similar to the actor who played Quarrel in Doctor No as well. Yeah, I think of those actors who I mentioned in that book, there was an awful lot of alcohol abuse going around. And he dies fairly young, Robert Shaw. He dies when he's only 51. He had a heart attack um, just while driving. I was also going to mention the, the actual, obviously you're the, the expert or more of the expert in terms of films, Adam, and shooting films. But I thought the way that they filmed the, the train scenes were really interesting and I thought that made Grant's character even more threatening when he's following Bond through the train carriage over his the secret code and then uses it. A very efficient villain I thought in a great way of shooting both outside and inside the, the train. Yeah you're absolutely right it's incredibly claustrophobic and again it's the sort of elaborate shot we didn't see that much of in Doctor No. We talked a little bit about everything being very efficient and minimalist. Here they're again taking an even greater cue from Alfred Hitchcock and they're employing some of the more elaborate uh, filming techniques that he used. So like you say, we have that shot of Grant following them inside the train as Bond is walking along the platform. And he knows that someone's there. He can sense a presence behind him, but he just doesn't quite know who it is at that point. In Doctor No, the action scenes are very much suspense sequences. In this, they are full-blown, tightly edited, really quick action moments with you know, fast cutting, a real sense of the geography of the scene. The, the gunfight at the gypsy camp is beyond anything really that we'd seen in Doctor No. And it's beyond a lot of other things that have been seen at that time. It's like something out of a Western, you know, but reapplied to a modern setting. And yeah, definitely the fist fight with Grant on the train. I still think outside of martial arts cinema, this is the best fist fight in film history. The lighting of it as well, the fact that the bulb is smashed and it's all in this blue glow so you can't quite see what's happening in the chaos and yet there's just enough logic to the cutting and where the camera's been placed and the choice of shot that you can follow the action of it it's absolutely superlative for me as well i think that train sequence is probably one of the very best action sequences in any bond film or any action film that you'll ever see i mean the fact that two men properly actually getting into each other and actually verging on having an actual fight you know we forget that Connery used to be a boxer and that you know he could land the punches as well as he could take them so it's the realism behind it is astonishing and and when you look at Red Grant as a henchman I think he's comparable to as Adam mentioned to Jaws but also to Stamper in um, Tomorrow Never Dies you know that sort of ruthless power and aggression that's you know that's very quiet for most of the film but will you know it's there's no sort of let up there's no 
no remorse, no mercy behind there. There's, it's just, you know, cold-blooded. And if, they, if they've got the orders to kill, they will just go and do it. It's, it's that first real vision of, of a ruthless henchman that we see, really. And it is brilliant, the fact of how it's choreographed and how it's all put together. It just makes it suspenseful as well. The train sequence itself... I can always feel my heart racing because, you know, even from the first time I saw it, it's, you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know how Bond's going to get out of it. Let's have a shout out for the other villains as well, because Lotte Lenya, we briefly mentioned, who's a fascinating character in real life. I mean, she's mostly known as a singer of uh, the Weimar Republic, who was uh, very closely linked to Kurt Weill, who was a two-time husband and Bertolt Brecht. So this is someone at the absolute epicenter of German culture in the early 20th century, and who was one of those people who fled Germany once the Nazis came in. But here she's extraordinary. She's absolutely reptilian as Rosa Klebb. Once again, like Dr. No, she's the person in charge. She doesn't have a huge amount to do, but she absolutely nails everything that she does have to do. Just the way that she handles herself, the way she moves, the way she speaks even, Everything just has that sense of menace. And she's downplaying the lesbianism of the character, which in the novel is much more overt. And yet just those tiny little moments that she brings in really flesh out that character. Not that she's evil because she is gay, but she uses that sense of sexual threat and that uh, predatory nature. Certainly in the scene when she's breathing Tatiana Romanova in her office, there are just little physical things she does, like playing with her hair the way that she looks at her through those glasses, which really emphasise through very tiny gestures the fact that this is someone who is really, really nasty and a real piece of work. Yeah, I was going to say that scene, there's a real uncomfortable edge to that scene, I felt. And uh, also I was going to mention the, uh, right at the end, I think I mentioned the, the pacing of the Doctor No film last time. Uh, I also quite like the pacing of this film as well, and I like that we get action throughout and the action continues right until the end and we see that of course in future Bond films we get that as well uh, but I, I did like that we wait until I think it's the last five minutes of the film is when Cleb comes out with her poisoned dagger shoe uh, and well I mean if she was a bit taller maybe she'd have taken him out I think she was I think she, I, I checked she, uh, the actress she was five foot six to Connery's six foot two that is a little bit of an unfair advantage to be sure also I want to give a big shout out to Cromstein here this is the chess grandmaster who's I think spectre number five the man with the waxy face this guy does not deserve what happens to him this guy is an absolute genius and Blofeld just offs him and think about it, his point when it all goes wrong was, well, my plan was brilliant. Uh, the choice of people from this club must have been what let us down. And you know what? He's 100% right, because Grant had Bond laid out on the train carriage floor. All he needs to do, gun to head, bang, right, he's dead. Get the film, kill the girl, get off the truck. I was going to say that uh, Kronstein is such a genius that when he gets the note that he has to be seen immediately, he can win a chess match. He doesn't just forfeit the game. He can win it immediately and then leave. I love the idea that he actually was just longing it out before that note came. He's like, well, I know I'm going to win, but, you know, I have nowhere to be. I might as well stay here all afternoon. And here's how good Kronstein is, okay? When they finally get off the train and into the flower truck, whose name is he calling? He's calling out Grant's name. Grant, he, there's no way that Grant could have planned this aboard the train because there's no phone. He has to get off at the station and tell people to make calls for him. So Kronstein knows that that's how they're going to steal the lector. He knows they're going to get out on the train. 
He knows that he's going to kill everyone bar Bond and the girl by the time we get to the first stop. He then knows that someone's going to send another, a new agent to Bond at the second stop, which is when Grant will come in. And he then knows at exactly what point of the border they can jump off the train and get in a flower truck and drive off. This guy's an absolute genius. And he's only been let down by Grant getting too arrogant and not killing Bond when he has the chance. And what's his reward? Blofeld just offs him. What's he do? What kind of idiotic man management is Blofeld doing here? Shocking. I think it's perhaps one of Spectre's shortcomings that they, they often off their own henchmen for, for very minor things. I, I can't imagine what the HR policy must be at Spectre, but I can imagine it can't be that great if they're, uh, if they're offloading their uh, members of staff at that rate or not. One point I did want to mention as well in terms of the action sequences is how actually terrifying the boat chase is in terms of when Bond... I'm going to talk about this in a little bit more detail with the cars and the gadgets. But when Bond fires at the oil drums... The fact that the stuntmen on those boats are literally leaping into flaming water. They are there's points where you can see them running towards flaming waves and things like that. And you just think this was kind of the days before health and safety as well. It is actually terrifying. Well, yeah, in terms of the boat scene, I think you're right, Phil. The uh, I think dangerous stunts, I guess, jumping into flames. Let's uh, also think of the poor guy who has to literally jump out the way of a helicopter um, about a dozen times on the side of that hill. It's going quite close to Bob Simmons, who I think was Sean Connery's stunt double which again, really makes it quite frightening. And it's brilliant talking about the layering of those action scenes as well. We've had the big gunfight in the camp. We've had the girl fight in the camp, which I'm sure we'll come to. We've had the big fist fight on the train and you think, oh, well, that, that's incredible. How are they going to outdo that? There are three more action sequences afterwards and two of them are, yeah, these ultra dangerous stunts. It's absolutely incredible. And it was, in fact, a race against time to finish this film off because um, of various um, tragic events that happened. Uh, Pedro Armendariz, who played Karen Bay, was really in very bad pain. He was uh, suffering from cancer throughout the entire shoot and took his own life in hospital before principal photography finished. But a lot of it also was trying to get those final action sequences in the bag. And it was a really tight race to the finish in order to get it ready for the October 63 premiere, just because of the work that went into them. Yeah, I was going to say, Adam, that's quite a good point with the helicopter scene. There is an urban legend that they did try to use Connery for some of the close-up shots. And the helicopter pilot was actually quite young and inexperienced. And he actually nearly killed Sean Connery because he flew too close to the actual rotor blades. There is one sequence where he dives down quite low and he actually nearly clips him so it is really quite astonishing how because obviously they were, again they were rushing to get the, the sequences filmed as you say just how hazardous that filming could have been you know we hear a lot of stories about you know stunt personnel getting killed even in modern times so the fact that they took those risks back then you know when they weren't as sort of health and safety conscious really is quite astonishing that they were prepared to do that really but you know i think it's quite an astonishing final sequence that is the the end result as well i think there are so many good characters i mean we've uh, we've been talking for a long time and just a few characters are so excellent the, the acting in this film. Also, I wanted to mention Pedro Armendera. I think he, you can see his own, even though he is acting, Karen Bay, an excellent character, I feel like you get the warmth of his personality through that character. I, I get the sense that we're seeing his personality uh, as well. Absolutely. Karen Bay is presented as a bon vivant who's had this incredibly colourful life even before he went into the intelligence service. Uh, Pedro Almendaritz, I guess, similarly, yeah. I mean, he's a Mexican actor. He's not Turkish at all. And he was one of the preeminent Mexican actors of his age, along with uh, people like Dolores Del Rio. And it is such a shame that he didn't live to see the film because he is, I think, just extraordinarily charismatic in it. 
in a sense, more so than Connery. There are times when, because of Connery's aloofness, he really lets uh, Armenda carry all the action, particularly in those um, first half scenes in Istanbul. Yeah, I think I'd have to agree, Adam. I, I honestly think Karim Bey is one of the very best sort of ally characters that Bond has. And uh, there's just a great, as you say, there's just a great warmth to to the way that Pedro Armenda is delivers that performance. And it actually makes it more, there's more depth to when he is obviously executed on the train. The fact that Red Grant, again, there's no sort of mercy there. There's, and you know, and sort of Kerim Bay has been such a, a good ally to Bond. It's sort of, you could tell it sort of hurts him that the fact that he does get executed. So there, there is an element of revenge there as well. That's a really great moment that he prompts from Connery as well, in terms of Connery's performance. When he sees Kerim dead on the floor, he doesn't do very much to betray it because he's Bond and he's meant to be aloof and he's meant to be detached. But he looks absolutely furious and he looks really devastated. And when he then opens the door to the carriage to question Tatiana about what's really going on, there's a really murderous glint in his eye. It's the time when you think Bond's actually going to kill her now, just for a moment. But yeah, Connery clearly also must have loved working with Armenderitz and must have appreciated the great chemistry that those two really well-drawn characters have. And it's, it just creates one of those great emotional moments. And one of those moments of showing Bond's vulnerability, which I always think are amongst my favourites in the series, because he suddenly isn't a superhuman. Suddenly he is an ordinary bloke who is prone to grief, who is prone to rage, and for whom the situation he's in can still be very overwhelming. Just changing tact a little, I was going to go at a light, slightly lighter tone. I was going to mention the uh, the Sylvia Trench scene at the beginning, the first quite a way into the film, about twenty minutes into the film, until we see Bond with his uh, with his girlfriend Trent. I, personally, I was reminded of our punting in Cambridge. Some bad memories for me uh, when I almost fell into the river. So uh, the the guy who goes past saying how great it's not a sport. He says it's a sport. It's not a sport. I'm sorry. It's a dreadful, dreadful thing. Martin, I think you're leaving off the bit when there were two very old women on the bridge near where you fell off, looking down and laughing their asses off at you. That was a very important part of that whole story. It's very important that we paint for the, the listeners at home the full picture of what happened, i.e. you could barely stand upright on the back of that punt. You pretty much dropped the pole straight into the water, as I remember it, uh, and then in that collapsed and state was, was laughed at by old ladies who presumably felt in their day, they could have done a lot better. Yeah, well, I'm a very tall man. It's very, it's very difficult to keep your balance. I think maybe actually if, if we'd have seen Connery doing it, I would have felt even worse that I was failed at punting, that Connery Bond could do it. But we never saw that. We just saw him <laughs> in the boat. In terms of the, I guess we should probably get a point out of it, which is uh, Trench. Uh, do we think it's probably a good idea that the Trench character drifts away, do we think, in terms of the Bond series as a whole? I think had she not done it, would have become a bit of a comedy, wouldn't it? It would have become a bit like Burt Kwok's character, Kato, in the Pink Panther series, where he always has to find ingenious ways of sneaking up on Inspector Cluzo and attacking him. We'd have had a situation where at the beginning of every Bond film, we somehow have to bring Sylvia Trench in and then get rid of her with no real logic or rhyme or reason. Yeah, to be honest, I don't think Sylvia Trench really added that much, so I don't think she's really a loss in the later films. I think that you know, Money Penny and Bond have a much better chemistry as sort of friends. And, you know, Sylvia Trench, she's a bit dull, really, to be honest. I don't think. No, no she, she doesn't. Dull? <laughs> Phil, you dr- Phil, you dream of having a girlfriend who sneaks into your flat at 4 a.m. and starts playing with your putting set. 
Oh, I'd adore it if somebody came in and played with me putting, so I'll give you that for free. To bring it back round, actually, I do understand and enjoy the presence of Silver in this one. I think it humanises Bond a bit more to show him with a steady girlfriend. It sort of shows he's not just someone who is leaping from bed to bed willy-nilly for the sake of it, so to speak. He does have a regular, you know, paramour, but during the course of his missions, perhaps he is forced into situations that he otherwise might not necessarily have, have jumped into feet first. Although having said that, he does have a threesome with the two gypsies on one night, and then the very next night, it's the scene with Tatiana. At least they don't have to fight each other, you know. He, he was very uncomfortable with the gypsy fight, and that's one of the ways that I think they get away with that gypsy fight. A, the fact that it's choreographed in a really properly vicious and brutal way. And the fact that it is shot with Bond very clearly having that perspective of, I'm not enjoying this, this is really not right, uh, I think allows them to get away with that scene and for it to stay sexy and seductive. But yeah, then they completely ruined that by having the whole, and now you may sleep with both of these people to decide who shall be the wife of uh, the son of the Gypsy King. As you mentioned, the bedroom scene in the hotel, we've mentioned it a couple of times, but we've come back round to it with Tatiana. Shall we talk about that scene? Because that scene is still used as the screen test for all of the actresses who are going to play Bond women. That's the scene that they play opposite the current Bond in order to gauge their chemistry. And I think that's a really incredible scene. And I think the character of Tatiana Romanova kind of of necessity because she is very much the bait in this plan and she is a pawn in a wider scheme. But again, I think like with Honey Rider, we have a situation where perhaps it's not as fully rounded as independent, as interesting a female character as we could have had. But that scene is absolutely incredible. It's so seductive. Every line of dialogue is so precise. The layers of what's going on in terms of it being a seduction, but them also trying to work each other out, I think is really excellent. And I think it's another example of a very iconic scene, perhaps rescuing a female character who isn't quite as strong as they could otherwise have been. Yeah, I thought it was amazing that the actress who plays Tatiana was only 21. She looks much older to my eyes, but apparently she was the, the youngest Bond girl. I also think Daniela Bianchi is one of the best Bond girls of all time. I know obviously everybody looks at Ursula Andress as Honey Rider in Doctor No, but I honestly think that Daniela Bianchi, just the fact that she has real intelligence and real, you know, real gravitas in the role, I think it really sets her apart from other Bond girls. Except Diana Rigg. Yes. Obviously, Diana Rigg is always number one, and then it's sort of a sliding scale from that point onwards. Just staying in that hotel setting, this film, I teased this last week, it contains probably my favourite single scene in any Bond film. And it's not the one you'd expect, because it's just the scene when Sean Connery's checked into his hotel and he walks around the room looking for bugs. And it goes back to everything we said last week about the look of the films, the photography of them, that vintage sheen that they have and the way that the colours are rendered with that film stock. Just the way Connery moves around hotel rooms, I find absolutely hypnotic. Just him checking for bugs becomes this absolutely dazzling sequence where you see this secret agent very simply, but in the coolest possible way, applying his craft. And also, it's an amazing showcase, perhaps the best showcase in the series for John Barry's score. He, came, he orchestrated the Bond theme, but Monty Norman composed the music for Dr. No in general. And just bringing Barry into the team, I think, is what elevates this above Dr. No, beyond everything else. And it 
creates that perfect segue into the wider Bond franchise and the feeling that those films have. John Barry is so crucial to that. His music is absolutely vital to what a Bond film feels like. And I just wondered very quickly about the relationship between the two producers, Harry Saltzman and Albert R. Broccoli. And I wonder if in this film and Goldfinger, we see in two very different respects that relationship at its peak. We know that later on, the relationship between them breaks down a little and Saltzman ends up leaving the series. But just looking at their other work, Broccoli, we know, is the great showman and he loves everything to be big and sensational and larger than life and put every dollar on the screen. Harry Saltzman is a very interesting and different producer, I think, because if you look at his other work, he's very involved with Woodfall films and that very sort of social realist kitchen sink wave of films that are coming up, like Saturday Night and Sunday Morning and Look Back in Anger, and really gritty, realistic British films, which are launching these great theatrical talents into the film world. And at the same time as this, he's adapting, in a sense, the anti-Bond, Len Dayton's The Press File, which would make a star of Michael Caine which in every sense is the opposite to what Bond is. That is the quintessential Cold War thriller. And I just wonder if Saltzman perhaps had the grit and that sense of grounding everything in reality and whether Broccoli was the one bringing to that relationship as producers the bigger, more outlandish elements and that perhaps this film and Goldfinger are so revered and work so well because actually they get the balance of those two elements spot on in a way that perhaps other Bond films which are weaker going forward are perhaps a little bit too big and a little bit too brash and a little bit too over the top. Perhaps because Saltzman didn't have as decisive a voice in the decision making as Broccoli going forwards once they become massive box office hits. Why don't you acquaint yourself with manuals? Be able to shoot through that in a couple of hours? Just took a few seconds, Q. Okay, so our next segment, we've spoken a little bit about the sexual proclivities of Rosa Klebb, but uh, Adam, can you give us some more details about some differences between the film and the book? Well, as with Dr. No, this is one of those films which cleaves incredibly closely to the book's structure and characters indeed. The major change is the fact that Spectre are the criminal organisation running everything. In the novel, this is the fifth novel, and throughout pretty much all of those first five books, the main enemy of Bond is Smirsch, uh, Schmierspionum, Death to Spies, as we later learn it stands for in The Living Daylights. And they're very much Fleming's slightly fictionalised version of the KGB before the fact that they were called the KGB was public knowledge. And they are pretty much masterminding everything purely as a revenge plot, because at this point Bond has killed Le Chiffre in uh, Casino Royale, he's killed Mr Big in Live and Let Die, and he's killed Hugo Drax in Moonraker, and now they've had enough of him and they want to off him. So that's the only major change. Beyond that, structurally, it's pretty much identical. Bond is absent for much, in fact, the entirety of the first third of the novel, pretty much, as we spend time amongst Smirsch and amongst its inner workings, and we get to know Rosa Klebb and everyone who is going to be sent against him. Uh, and then the key thing beyond that is the additions which come in after, well, not after the book finishes, but between the encounter with Grant on the train and the encounter with Rosa Klebb in the hotel room, pretty much all the action sequences that we've talked about were masterminded by the filmmakers to transcend, I guess, the material as a simple Cold War thriller and to go for a bigger box office hit uh, and a more spectacular movie than that. The train fight with Grant is very similar. There is no Atashi case. Instead, Bond manages to manoeuvre a cigarette case within a book over his heart. When Grant shoots him, it stops the bullet, but Bond is able to pretend that he's been killed, and as Grant is heading away, 
he takes out a knife and manages to get the better of Grant. The other thing, very briefly to mention, is the ending, actually, in which Rosa Klebb succeeds in stabbing Bond with uh, the poison-tipped shoe. And Bond collapses, and his fate is left in doubt. And this is, uh, we mentioned this briefly last week, I think, but this is Ian Fleming doing essentially a Sherlock Holmes at the Reichenbach Falls. He felt like he'd done everything he wanted to with the character, and so had, in, a, in essence, killed him off in order to pursue other projects. But of course, the books were so popular, and because he very cleverly left him an open-ended conclusion, he is able to return in Doctor No. Yeah, I think I would have liked to see that ending, actually, rather than the, the green screen, that terrible green screen of the, the Venice Canals. It would have been much more dramatic. Of course, you've still got to then have James Bond will return in the credits, which kind of takes a little bit of the mystery out of it. Yeah, that's true. That wouldn't really work, would it? I guess the, other, the one other thing to say in the context of history is we've mentioned uh, JFK. You listed this as one of his favourite novels, and presumably he would have been able just to see the film. It was released in October 1963, and sadly, of course, Kennedy was assassinated in Dallas in November 1963. So as well as being one of his favourite novels, perhaps we can speculate it may have been one of the last films he saw, sadly. You are right, Adam. It was, that was going to be one of my trivia points. But um, during a private screening, JFK actually went to see the film. So it was the very last film he ever saw before he was assassinated. I like how he steal all of Phil's trivia before he gets to it. Yeah, sorry, Phil. I don't mean to. That's fine. I've still got some bits to say. I'll reduce the waffle. You're not thinking that. I sure am, boy. Ever heard of Evil Knievel? <laughs> I've never done that before. Oh, neither have I, actually. So our next segment, Phil, our resident car geek, what have we got slightly more exciting this week? Yeah, so it's a bit more of a mix again this week. Now, interestingly, in... I meant, sorry, I meant the cars, not your car. (laughs) I saw Adam (laughs) laughing in the background. You want to try that again? No, no, I think we're leaving all this in. Anyway, so yes, so from Russia with Love, we see, we don't actually actually see that much in terms of car chases as such however we do see quite a faithful reference to bond bentley obviously in the books we get a lot of reference to the bentley being used and it's his kind of favorite mode of transport so the car we see is a green and black series three three and a half liter drop head coupe um, which was famous in the 30s but again it's not really used for that much we only really see it in the scenes with sylvia trench while bond is enjoying his picnic but interestingly it does start to display some of the early gadgets because we see the very very primitive mobile phone that he's got attached to the car which obviously is quite a luxury you know even going into the 80s that would have been quite a luxury item but obviously q branch probably would have fitted it for emergencies so it's quite a groundbreaking item that he's got fitted to the car again similar to dr no we also see a big mix of kind of european and american cars again when we're in istanbul so this is the next period when we see a lot of different vehicles and there is obviously a lot of reliance on things like chevrolets and fords and cadillacs throughout the film so obviously the pickup truck that's used to get bond off the tr- bond and tatiana off the train is an old chevy pickup and it's quite interesting to see that mix again obviously post-war europe we've got a lot of different cars featured and it's quite an eclectic mix 
Chief among which is when Bond first arrives in Istanbul and he's collected by Karim Bey's son in the Rolls Royce and they're taken to the, the embassy, swiftly pursued by the Bulgarian investigators in their Citroen traction Avant. We also see the helicopter sequence, as we've mentioned, that also features one of the most terrifying sequences where Sean Connery was nearly killed. The fact that the helicopter pilot was instructed to fly as low as he possibly could and then got too low as it turned out because it, the rotor blades almost hit him and then we see the moment where the flare is used oh sorry the um the gun is used to blow the helicopter up now obviously the close-up shots also oh, the wide shots were used of an actual helicopter but due to the budgetary constraints this is the first time where a model is used um, just going on to his briefcase as we've mentioned before you get the use of the dagger spring-loaded which can come out of the side of the briefcase you also get the use of the, the tear gas canister which is obviously magnetic so it can attach to the top of the briefcase and obviously it's the horizontal opening to make it safe i was going to say phil about the gas canister and the the whole attache case i really like the way that connery kind of had like a, a childlike sense of glee when q showed him how to open the case i don't know if yeah. that was connery or whether it's supposed to be bond having that kind of excitement well i, I think I think that's where it sort of sets it up for the rest of the films because it's you see that again sort of in the Pierce Brosnan era as well where it's sort of there's that sort of immaturity about the weapons and also Q riffs off that. This is also the first film where we see the proper villains gadgets as well. You know the fact that Red Grant has it's quite an elegant design. The fact he's got a watch that's got the garot wire in it and also Rosa Klebb's shoe that was based on a real KGB weapon that was a spring-loaded shoe knife. But yeah, so we quite we see quite an interesting mix of different vehicles and different gadgets for the first real time. Okay, so the next segment is called That's Not Okay Anymore. Uh, so this is my segment where I take a look at perhaps the, the non-PC areas of the film. For this film, the, the whole gypsy camp, now I'm not familiar with gypsy or Romani culture, but I don't know if it's an accurate portrayal. I'm guessing perhaps not with the two women fighting over the man, certainly Bond having the threesome afterwards. I think you'd have to go and speak to someone like Tyson Fury to, uh, to see how accurate that is or, or not. Um, yeah, it is probably the one segment of the film. I love that it's in there. I think there is a real salaciousness and a kind of naughtiness almost to it. And I think it is worth it for that great Western-style gunfight between uh, the forces of Smirsh and uh, the Gypsies. Just because we get a lot more of that lovely Sean Connery, not really in much of a hurry at all. He just kind of flaunts us around, more or less dicking over everyone else's fight rather than picking one himself. But yeah, actually, I forgot to mention that in our general chat, but Bond certainly seems very calm, doesn't he? In every situation where there's there's a melee around him, that he's going about his business, he knows what to do, cool, calm and collected. Absolutely, that's Sean Connery. And uh, I think the other potentially non-PC area was when Karen Bay's office is bombed and uh, we get the, the dialogue, which I'll insert here. The girl left the hysterics. Find your technique too violent. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, that, that line really did make me squirm when I heard it again. It's uh, not a very good joke, James. Not a very good joke at all. But yeah, apart from that, I think in general, I think uh, it did quite well. It holds up well against the test of time. I think uh, I think the film is, is excellent, really. I think the only scene for me is one the train where I think he does slap uh, Tatiana on the bum when she's uh, when they're trying to get ready for dinner and he sort of like just as a hurry up which is a, a little bit awkward well that sets us up nicely for next week with pussy I was gonna say oh Connery loves a little bum slap though there's um dink at the start of the film as well when she's ushered away with um, a line which we shall reveal next week but that will certainly be one featuring in this section 
Sir, I'm aware of my shortcomings. Okay, and our next segment is the top trivia. Now, we've spoken quite a bit about some of the trivia in the film. Any other interesting elements, Phil? Yeah, so there are a few bits and bobs, a few sort of mini goofs and in-jokes as well um, that I thought I'd run through. Now, I know that we've mentioned a lot of the Bond actors have said this is their favourite one. Interestingly, Sir Sean Connery has also called this one his favourite of all the ones that he made as well. Just going back to the film as well, just before Bond sees Tatiana in the hotel room you'll probably note that he starts to run a shower now interestingly he never switches it off so obviously we see him go to the bedroom we see him start to do the love scene for all we know the shower is still running now so it could god forbid what the water bill will be but we still think it is still running um (laughs) (laughs) that's the best bit of trivia ever oh he's left that shower running just thought I'd add it in there, you know, just in case you, you're eagle-eyed. Also, for the eagle-eyed viewers out there, if you spot very carefully during the gypsy fight, going into the Russian fight sequence at the gypsy camp, the actor playing Karim Bey has to apply his own fake blood, so he very quickly rubs on the fake blood onto his arm uh, just before being shot, which is always quite a funny sequence. I say, I'll just run through a few other bits of trivia quite quickly. So apparently director Terence Young was never a fan of Daniela Bianchi's legs. So in the Russian embassy where you can see the woman walking through shot, that isn't Daniela Bianchi, it's actually a stand-in. The Spectre headquarters that we see in the um, towards the end of the film were actually from the main office administration building at Pinewood Studios. So that office space that you see towards the end of the film wasn't a studio at all. That was the actual office space that was used. No, 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 stop getting Bond wrong! Stop getting Bond wrong! Okay, and to end the show, we have our usual quiz. Uh, This week, I have the honours. You're going to take it in turns, and uh, we have the full cast list of From Russia With Love, and uh, we're going to take it in turns to give me the name of a character. Now, we've spoken about many of the characters, so hopefully uh, you should get the easy ones. I will accept uncredited roles as well. So if you don't know, uh, if we get to the stage where you've run out of characters... Uh, it's worth a guess. So, for example, bodyguard number three, I would accept as an answer. Okay, so uh, we'll see. I don't know. We might do this in future. I don't know if you're going to need two lives, but uh, maybe for this first one, you just have one life. So uh, if you get it wrong, you've got it wrong and the other person wins. What do you want? Mm-hmm. Heads or tails? Uh, heads. It's tails. Adam's first. Okay, so uh, Adam, do you want to give us your first character? I will say James Bond 007. Well, the 007 was not in the credits, but uh, yeah, <laughs> that's correct. Uh, right, Rosa Klebb. Correct. I'm going to say Ernst Stavro Blofeld, but I believe he's credited as a question mark. Uh, I think he, uh, the actor who plays him as a question mark is the guy who played Professor Dent in Doctor No. He's the question mark, uh, but he is, Blofeld's name is in the credits, so correct. Uh, Red Grant. That is correct, Phil. Tatiana Romanova. That is also correct. M. Anne is there. Boothroyd slash Q. Boothroyd, yes. Uh, oh, what's his name? Morzeni? Morzeni is correct, Phil. What well Sylvia Trench. Sylvia Trench is there, yes. Karim Bay. Karim Bay, yes. Ali Karim Bay. He's Darko Karim Bay in uh, the novel. I'll say Moneypenny. Credited as Miss Moneypenny, but I'll give it to you. Oh, I'm starting to struggle now. Uh... I'm genuinely starting to struggle now, and I don't know why, because there should be loads. You haven't even said my favourite yet. See, is, is Gypsy King clusters? Tyson Gypsy... Fury is not in the film. <laughs> <laughs> I can confirm that. First. No, I'm, t- I'm trying to remember what the like 
gypsy leader or whatever. His, I can't remember what his name was. The the guy that had the really awkward dubbing. Is that your guess, Phil? Well, it's wrong, obviously. I'm trying. My brain has gone. I'm struggling. I'll, because it's the first time we've done this, Phil, I'm going to give that to you. There are several people credited, uncredited, but they are in the cast as Gypsy. Okay, all right, thank so you. So I'll give it. Not Gypsy King, but Gypsies are there. Right, okay. We can't We can't have any more Gypsies now. I shall say Kronstein. Ah, oh, shit. Kronstein, yes, the, the most clever man in the film is there. Yeah, I'm struggling there. Henchman number three. Okay, going with henchman number three, Phil. Specifically number three. If there was a, hen- <laughs> if there was a henchman, oh, there is a henchman, <laughs> but not number three. Let's. I'll be generous. I'll give it to you, Phil. There is a henchman. <laughs> so I'm scraping the bottom of the barrel here. You are. I'm going to say Ben's the Russian security man. Yes. You got him, yeah. Peter Bayliss, yeah. Back to you, Phil. I don't know where you go from henchman number three. No, I think I, I think Adam, you may have beaten me here because I'm trying to think. No, can't think. Any guess along the lines of henchman number three? Assassin number two. There you go. That's all. <laughs> uh, let's see. There's uh, now. Unfortunately, there's no assassin or assassin number two. I'm afraid, Phil. So, uh, Adam, you win our first game of head-to-head credits. Well done. Uh, so you could Thank have you had in, in terms of the main credits, we have a character called Vavra. I can't he's, the Vavra gi- he's the uh, he's the Gypsy King. Ah, right. So Vavra. That's Vavra. We also Vavra have is uh, the Gypsy King. we have Karim's girl or mistress. The only other one I could think of was Krilenku, the, the Russian guy who they often climbing out of Anita Ekberg's mouth. Yeah, I think he might oh, be in yeah. the uncredited bit, but yeah, he is there. Oh, right. And we also have ones like the chess umpire. And you could have also had fake James Bond, who, of course, is right at the oh, beginning. Oh, yeah. Played by oh. John Ketteringham. I see. Great John Ketteringham. <laughs> okay, so uh, as our winner, Adam, which song would you like to play out the episode? I think I would like to play out the episode Lotte Lenya singing Mac the Knife. Excellent. Okay, so uh, thanks for listening, everyone. That was From Russia With Love. We, of course, will be back with episode number three, where we'll take a look at Goldfinger. So I hope you can join us for that. Of course, you can. As always, you can watch the film before you listen to our podcast, so you can uh, follow along with what's happening and all of the characters. But I'm sure Mr. Alan Partridge will uh, give us a great synopsis for that film as well. So uh, thanks, everyone. So it's bye from me, Martin. And it's bye from me, Adam. And it's bye from me, Phil.